Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Well, if you have a Bible, open it to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. If you're using one of our pew Bibles or, well, chair Bibles, <laughs> uh, I believe that's on page 671. And if you're newer to Christianity and don't have a Bible yet, or you're investigating the faith and you don't have a Bible, we would love for you to take that Bible and keep it and use it and read it. This morning, because it's the first Sunday of the month, as is our tradition, we'll be receiving communion together as a family. Christians, for the past 2,000 years since the night that Jesus was betrayed before his crucifixion, when he gathered together with his disciples in the Last Supper, have been remembering his crucifixion and his resurrection by gathering together regularly to, to remember that most important of all moments. And so we are going to do that formally today as a church family. We have communion available every Sunday for Christians that want to remember the cross and examine their lives. But in particular, on the first Sunday of the month, we receive communion together as a church family. This is for Christians. This is something that believers in Jesus do together. Some churches have different ways of doing it. They restrict it to just the members of their church. Uh, Our practice here is to... Uh, restrict it to Christians, to those people that have believed in Jesus and have trusted in him for their salvation. And so if you are a believer in Jesus, whether you're a member of this church or not, you've repented of your sins and trusted in Christ, at the end of our message, we're going to respond in communion, and we invite you to do that as a family with us. And if you have not yet repented and believed in Jesus and trusted in him alone for your salvation, And I pray that today you will do that so that you will be able to partake of this meal with us. And you will have an opportunity, even as I'm speaking, to turn from self-righteousness and sin and turn towards Christ and trust in him. That's all we really care about today is lifting up Jesus and his mission, which is to save sinners. And so as I speak today, that's as Reynolds has alluded to. And as of all the songs have pointed to, we are gathered here to make much of Jesus and lift up what he has done on the cross for us in our place. That's okay. <laughs> A little punctuation for uh, that point. Well, let me read 1 Corinthians 3, verses 10 through 17. And then I'll pray, and then we'll work our way back through it. Remember this letter... 1 Corinthians was written to a church that was very gifted, but they were very selfish and carnal. In the first few chapters, Paul writes to them to really in in incredible humility and graciousness to thank God for them, even though he had received report back that they were really messing up the, the message of the gospel that God had given to them. And he wants to recalibrate them and clarify them for them again what the gospel is And then to deal with some of the problems in the church, in particular in the early chapters, he's dealing with some of the factions and the divisions and the divisive party spirit that is is prevalent in the Corinthian church. And so he's done that in the first couple chapters. And now, as we read in these seven or eight verses, he is going to begin to speak to them about the importance of the church as a local body and how it is built and how 
that is so critical because what God is doing is he is building a group of people to be a display of his grace and goodness to a lost world. So let me read in 1 Corinthians 3, verses 10 through 17. According to the grace of God given to me like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Well, these are serious words and we need the Lord's help to understand them and apply them to our church and our life. So, uh, Pray with me. Now, I'm going to pray, but I want you to pray with me and pray for me. That God would uh, give me the blessed grace of self-forgetfulness and that I would decrease as I'm speaking and that Christ, the eternal Word of God, would stand forth from the written Word of God so that Christians in this room would see Jesus and that unbelievers in this room would see Jesus and their hearts would burn with them and in them. And they would be compelled to respond to him. So let's pray and ask God to do something among us this morning. Lord, thank you for your words. They are true and eternal and life-giving. So Lord, I pray that as we think about them today and as I speak about them, that you would give us great grace. Lord, I pray that as a church we would tune ourselves into what you are saying through these incredible words of Paul. And I pray, God, for the Christians in this room that their affections would be stirred for Jesus that you would break off the callousness of our religious spirits, that we would see your plan of the local church, and that we would long for and love the bride of Christ in a deeper and more gracious and more humble way. And God, I pray for those in this room that have not yet believed in Jesus, which includes people that think that they already have, but maybe have not truly, and those that are honest about where they are with you. I pray regardless that those that have not yet trusted in Jesus would come to a saving faith in Him by repenting of their sin and trusting in Christ alone for their salvation. And Lord, I pray that as we end this time together in worship and communion, I pray, God, that You would show Yourself mighty to us and that we would glory in the God of our salvation. I pray these things in Jesus' mighty and good name. Amen. Amen. Hey, as I was praying, I remembered that I wanted to say hello to somebody that is here uh, that is very dear to Crosspoint and very dear to Jennifer and I in particular. She was part of our church for three or four years, and um, she's from the country of England, 
which again, for those of you like me that went to public school or are from California, that's a country actually in the Atlantic Ocean. It's sort of instrumental in the beginning of America. They, they speak English there, evidently. Um, but she came to America to work for Total Systems, had never really heard the gospel or about Jesus. And she came to faith in Christ uh, through the ministry of Crosspoint and um, just became woven into our hearts. And she's back visiting America uh, where she makes fun of our English. And um, where is she? Where is Allison? She is somewhere. Allison, where are you? There she is. Allison, I want you to stand up because I want people to see. Allison Dolphin is visiting with us. Yes. Yeah. We love Allison. So good to have you. Um, Well, I have four thoughts that I want to share with you today that I see in this scripture. But before I share with you those four thoughts, I want to give you just a couple introductory thoughts about how we should approach this text. Paul in this text is speaking to a local church. He's speaking to a group of people who are doing life together, who have committed to one another, who have believed in Jesus and have organized themselves together under leadership that meets qualifications that God gave the early church and that have committed to to do life together on mission for Jesus. And so the first thing that I think we need to really have in the forefront of our minds as we think about this scripture is that the Bible is written first to a people in community, not to isolated individuals. This doesn't mean, of course, that the Bible is not personally applicable. Of course it is. The Bible is utterly personally applicable. But God's primary plan is not just the saving of individuals so that they will be sort of individual silos for the Lord so that they can have good, blessed lives for these 70 or 80 years. But God's plan of redemption from the ages has always been to call to himself a people so that through this people and how they love one another and interact with one another, that through this people they would literally become the display of God's grace to the earth. Whether it was saving Old Testament Israel from their trials or whether it is the New Testament church, God's design, his evangelism plan for the world is not primarily through individual proclamations of the gospel and isolated incidences, although that is a wonderful thing. It is through the life and the grace-filled display of the gospel that should take place in every church across the world. And so the Bible is written to people in community. And, And that brings us to our second thought is that, let's admit it now, we are particularly challenged as Americans with this line of thinking because we are rugged individuals, are we not? We are people who care about personal individual rights and we, we picket, we march on Washington, we defend, we have court systems, we care about our personal rights. We are rugged individualists. We are sons of the pioneer Well, those of us from California, you southern folks stayed here. My folks went to California. But anyway, you get the point. We are rugged individualists. We we are we are we're selfish by nature. And that cuts against the grain of how the Bible is presented to us. So I think we need to understand that. Don't read the Bible primarily for individual promises. Read the Bible 
seeing it through the lens of what God is doing in a people so that collectively he might display his gospel through them. So with those two things in mind, let's work our way back through. I'll get to the four points in just a second, but let me give you kind of a a feel for what's going on here. Paul now is writing at the beginning of chapter 3. He talks about the divisions in the church again, and he is encouraging them to grow in the Lord. What's at stake is the advance of the gospel through their sanctification and through their growth. And now he turns into this analogy. Last week we talked about this analogy of a field. Remember, well, you're God's field, and there's fruit that God wants to cause to grow in this church and every other Christian church so that people will come and taste and see that the Lord is good through our fruit and our growth. And now he switches analogies and he he takes on the analogy of a building. And in verse 10 he says, or actually verse 9 he backs up and he says, you are God's building. And then in verse 10 he says that according to the grace that God has given me, like a skilled master building, I laid a foundation and now someone else is building upon it. So he's saying that a couple years ago, I came to you, I brought the gospel. Remember we read in the first chapter how he and Priscilla and Aquila, these other tent makers, this couple that uh, had the same trade that he did, began the church. They were like the first little small group of three that began the Corinthian church. And now Paul has moved on to Ephesus, and now there are other leaders who are now building on the church and carrying the gospel. Uh, my prayer has always been that Cross Point would go much beyond me, that there's coming a day when, when I will retire or, or, or die. Actually, both of those things are going to happen. And so I pray that this church and every other church would be a church that is not about one particular leader, but it's about leaders who come and humble themselves and serve the church and point people to Christ. And that's what Paul is saying is happening here. And he's saying, now let each one take care. So be careful how you're doing this, because remember, the problem that's happening here is that other teachers are now coming in and they're starting to add to Paul's foundational teaching of the gospel with faulty man-centered teachings that are kind of mixing in the Greek philosophical systems of the day. And remember, we talked about the sophists, people that relied on wisdom. And so what they're doing is they're kind of treating the message of the gospel and Christianity as if it is merely just another sort of way to live better and they're saying, well, yes, it's a better way to live than all of these other systems, but it's merely just another pragmatic self-help system that helps you advance. And, and, and by turn, what they're doing is they're turning the gospel upside down and making the message of Christianity about the individual. And friends, that ugly false gospel rears its head all the time, even now. I mean, the self-help gospel, the the health and wealth gospel, the, the what's in it for you gospel, always, always completely misses the point of the scriptures and is false because it does not hold God out as the point of everything. And that's kind of what is happening here. And so Paul is saying that there's these other teachers coming and they're laying on top of his foundation these faulty teachings. And now he's trying to correct it. And he goes on in verse 12 and he says that, look, if you're, you're going to build here on top of this, this material and and there's coming a day when everybody's teaching and everybody's work for the Lord is going to be judged. And then in the last couple of verses, just to give you a flavor of what he's saying and how serious he is about this, before we work our way through these four points that I see in this, he says that this is so serious that, that this church, Cross Point Church, the Corinthian church, 
First Baptist Church downtown, Christ Community, Edgewood Baptist, Evangel Temple, North Highland, First Methodist, St. Mark, St. Luke, every church that believes in Jesus is taken so seriously by God that if we destroy God's church, God will destroy us. And so with that as kind of a background, this should give us a deep sobriety, a gravity as we think about what is Paul is saying. And I see that he's saying, I think, many things, but there's four things that I think that Paul is saying to us through this. The first is, is that Jesus is the foundation of the church. Now, this may, uh, this may seem sort of fundamental and kind of like, Brad, we got this, but I think we need to remember it over and over and over again. Jesus is the foundation of this church. You know, churches develop sometimes sort of uh, reputations for being good at certain things, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Churches sometimes have real good music ministries, or churches have excellent children's ministries, or churches sometimes rest on the particular personality or strength of a communicator. And all of those things can be fine, and God can use those things. But do you realize that the foundation of the church whether it's Crosspoint or any other church, needs to be Jesus. Christ is the chief cornerstone. He is what we're here for. We've talked a lot about lately about how sort of the undermining message a lot of times of American Christianity is that God is sort of here up in heaven with a, with a, little, a little petal leaf flower, sort of, he loves me, he loves me not, sort of hoping that we will come to him so that he can bless our lives and make it better. And the, a lot of times the public ministry of many churches sort of presents it. And I think it has to do with the ego of pastors because they just want people to come. And pastors a lot of times fall prey to the false gospel of justification by numbers. And they just want to judge their success by how many people are coming to see how many people can come. And so the underlying message is, is this is what God can do for you. And what that does is it siphons away the clarity and the power. The best thing for the human soul is to realize that everything in the world points towards the glory of God in Christ. And the beautiful paradox of that is that that is alone what can satisfy our hearts. And so Paul is saying here to this Corinthian church in verses 10 and 11 that I laid the foundation of Christ, the gospel, the clear message of what God is doing in this world to save people, to bring glory to himself and joy to his people. That's the foundation of this church. But what, is that, what does that look like? What does that smell like in a group of people in 2010 in Columbus, Georgia, in the old Mansours slash Zoo City building? What does that smell like? I wrote down just a couple phrases that I that I pray would be our sort of our culture or our Jesus foundation ethos. I just wrote these things. Don't have them on the screen, but just listen. It'll be in my notes. Uh, we'll post on the internet tomorrow. It means that we're Christ exalting. We're focusing on Jesus. If you come to Crosspoint, you should expect to hear the name of Jesus a lot. Not in whimsical just sort of religious sort of way, but in reverence and joy and worship. Jesus, Jesus. A couple of years ago, a gentleman visited our church and he told me, he says, you guys say the name of Jesus a lot. And that was, a, he was being complimentary. And I said, thank you. Yes, exactly. That's right. We love Jesus. 
We're Christ-exalting. Secondly, we're gospel-centered. It's not just enough to just, just talk about Jesus. You have to talk about what God has done in Jesus to save the world, the message of the gospel that you must repent and believe in Jesus. You must trust in Jesus. Jesus is not your helper. He's not the means to a better life, but you must trust in Christ. The message of the gospel is that the world is wicked and stands opposed to God, and every person in this room is born rebellious and lost and dead in their sins. And the glorious, scandalous good news of the gospel is that God offers life When you repent and believe and trust in Christ alone and not in religion, not in self-righteousness, not in your ability to fight sin, but when you trust in Christ, you are saved. It's gospel-centeredness. We need to continue to say that. We want to be, the third thing is we want to be Bible-saturated. You want to hear messages out of the Bible. There's a young person who's part of this church now, and they're not from this country, but uh, they mentioned to the family that they're staying with that one of the things that they noticed immediately about Crosspoint was that they read from the Bible all the time. And I wanted to, when I got that email, I wanted to stand up and shadow box. Like, yes, we read from the Bible. That's what we do here. We want to read from the Bible on Sundays and Mondays and Tuesdays and Wednesdays and Thursdays. We care about the Word of God. Some of you grew up in churches where they didn't read the Bible or they didn't preach from the Bible. And the day that I come up here and read one verse and then take a bunch of rabbit trails onto little cute little stories or little readings from the book of virtue or, you know, Paul Harvey's thoughts on how to be better. Run. Don't walk. Run. Get up in the middle of the service and run. I'm serious about that. We preach from the Bible. We care about the Bible. We read the Bible. We, the, the Bible. The Bible is God's word revealed to us. And we want to be saturated We want to be overflowing with the words of the scriptures because the word is life. It gives us health. It makes us see God more clearly and it guards us from sin and wrecking our lives. Next, we want to be spirit empowered. Listen, we're not, you know, the danger for churches like us that care about doctrine and precision and theology. And by the way, we do. That is very important to us. We want to be right about the things that we're saying. We want our doctrine to be clear and biblical and historic and orthodox. But a lot of times people like us that are more sort of intellectual in their pursuit of God is that it can become dry and passionless and, 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 and it can just sort of shrivel up. Listen, good theology, good study of the Bible should lead you to worship, should lead you to doxology. Theology, which is the study of God, should lead you to worship in the Spirit, and the Spirit of God should descend on a place that loves to delight in the God of Scriptures. And so we're not just here to figure things out more cleverly than other people. We are here to let the wind of God's Spirit blow us and renew us and stir our hearts so that we might adore Jesus more passionately. We want to be Spirit-empowered people. The wind blows where it wills, not only to save souls, but to come and rest upon a group of people so that they will be a beautiful display of God. God chooses to bless a congregation according to His own sovereign grace and so we can do everything right and be dry we need the empowerment of the presence of the spirit of god among us and we want to be that type of people we want to be spirit empowered the next thing that i pray would describe us as people that are foundationally 
built on Christ is we want to be pervasively humble. People that believe in the greatness of God and see the gospel clearly should be the most humblest kids on the block, man. There's just no... It is an oxymoron to say an, an arrogant Christian. Those two words, just they, they, they don't really go together. And the Bible has no category for it. We should be pervasively humble. We should be radically generous. We should give and give and give and give. And this informs if we're building our life on Jesus who was the greatest giver of all. This should radically inform how we do things, how we live, how we raise our kids, the things that we buy, the structures that we build as a church. We're not in this gig to build a monument unto ourselves. We, we should be radically generous in everything that we do, believing that God will, through us, make much of himself. That is, that is where true joy is, friends. When you give, 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 become more like Christ. And we should be grace-filled in our patience with one another. We should display the one another's of Scripture. We should be the safest place in the world for the wounded soul. You know what the problem with church culture is a lot of times is that you have to start acting like a mature Christian way before you are actually are one. Because everybody's putting on a religious face, acting like they have it together. And there's no place for the train wrecks to get back on the track. Do you know what happens? And I have noticed this in the life of this church. When I started to become more clear with the gospel and hold up Christ, I'm not saying this to my own credit, just God's grace, but when, when I, about four years or so, began to be more clear and more gospel-centered, when you hold up Christ, He is the one that saves and heals. And God has a peculiar way of sending broken, hurting, needy, wounded people to the only thing that can heal, which is the proclamation of the gospel. And so we want Crosspoint to be a place not for pretty, cute, sophisticated, squared away people, but for train wrecks, man. Train wrecks. And if we're going to be a place for people who are wounded and broken, that means the people that have it mildly squared away need to have their head on a swivel to help put tracks, trains back on the track. And not go to lunch with all the other cute people. And by the way, it's been my experience that cute, seemingly squared away people oftentimes get off the tracks too. We all need the grace of Christ. We all need a grace-filled community where it is okay to not be okay. And then in that place, there's this gentle, beautiful, loving, nurturing pressure to become more like Jesus. Oh, that's what it means to be a place where Jesus is the foundation. And finally, I hope you've noticed this. One thing that I think we want to be about here in our ethos is an intentional simplicity to what we do. We're not trying to overcook our gatherings or our programming. But here's what we do. We sing about Jesus. We pray to Jesus. We preach about Jesus. And we respond to Jesus. That's kind of what our 
gatherings are all about. We're not trying to overdo a bunch of stuff. We want to be intentionally simple. Okay, that's uh, some thoughts about having a Christ-centered, Jesus-foundation type of church. Uh, there's a wise carefulness that I think we need to... Uh, that I think we need to exhibit as a church about how we build ourselves as a church. This is what Ephesians says, Ephesians 5, verse 15 through 17. It says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And so we, as we build as a church, we need to not be foolish. And by the way, as I'm talking about us as a church, there are a thousand individual implications for our own lives as well. I'm not saying what I said at the beginning about how we shouldn't read the Bibles primarily as individuals. I'm not trying to stunt any individual uh, thing that the Holy Spirit is speaking to you. There's a thousand implications for us individually. We need to be wise about how we live our lives and what we build our lives on, certainly. But Paul, in this particular passage, is speaking specifically about the church family. A word of exhortation before we move on to the, to the second point. A word of exhortation to several subsets within the greater culture of Crosspoint. A word to people that have been at Crosspoint for a long time, and this applies to making Jesus as our foundation. A word of exhortation to people that have been at Crosspoint for a long time. This is Jesus' church, not ours. The goal has never been to create a cozy community where you can find your place in a safe social circle. We must continually push ourselves to get outside of our comfort zones and be on a mission for Jesus. Yes, foster deep, abiding, lifelong friendships in Christ. But to whom much is given, much is required. Get outside of yourself and help serve people that are hurting and broken and the least of these. Second little subset of people, people that have recently come to Crosspoint from other churches. I am humbled. We, as a group of people, as a church, are deeply humbled and grateful that God has sent you our way. We realize that at various times, because of God's providence and because of what may be going on at other churches, that God, in his providence, sends people or sends them to other flocks that believe in Jesus. But listen to me. Be wise about your new church choice, but not idolatrous. Be wise about selecting a new church, if it's Crosspoint or some other, but not idolatrous. You run the danger of slipping into consumerism because that is the subconscious tenor of our culture. And what I mean by that is don't walk into a church, whether it's Crosspoint or some other one that you may go to if you don't land here, by always sort of having the question echoing in your spirit, what can this place do for me? Don't compare this church or some other church to the one that you came from or expect it to meet the romantic ideals of a church from your past. What you do when you do that is you're basically holding this past experience up as an idol that you are going after more than the mission that Christ may have for you in this moment in your life. That can easily, in fact, is idolatry. When you, when you major on your preferences rather than that what Christ may, doing, may be wanting you to do in your life now, don't coddle your past experiences And in particular, don't coddle your past bad experiences or some wound that you may have had previously in a church. Look, we want you to come and be restored and have health breathed into you, but don't coddle that bad experience too much because what you do when you do that is you let that hurt and that pain 
become the most identifying thing about you and it inhibits you from ever really fully giving your heart again to the body of Christ. And when you do that, what you are doing is you are esteeming your pain more than Christ's pain on the cross to heal you and bring you into a body of Christ so that you might be fruitful and joyful again. And so a word of exhortation to those two subsets. And finally, if you are... uh, don't meet one of those categories. You're just trying to find a church. Maybe you're new and coming to Jesus. Oh, come and join and serve and give your heart. Don't be afraid. We're going to love you. Nothing crazy is going to happen here. We're going to press on you to see Jesus, to respond to Jesus. Don't hold back. Let us know your name. Don't always be on the fringe. Give your heart to the body of Christ because you're part of it and God has a mission for you within it. Okay, that's point number one. Jesus is the foundation of the church. He goes on now in the next few verses. In verse 12 through 15, he says, Now if anyone builds on the foundation, which is Jesus, with gold, silver, precious stones, those are good. And then he gives a couple bad examples. Wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. And fire will test what sort of work each one has done. So what Paul is saying now is that there's two possible ways to build on this foundation. So that brings us to our second point. It's possible to have the right foundation. Listen to this. This should, this should cause us to, to really examine ourselves as individuals and as a church. It is possible to have the right foundation, but build the wrong way. Let me state this another way. It's possible to be a church that actually has Jesus as its foundation, but it builds on the foundation of Christ in a sloppy way, taken personally, it is possible to be a Christian that wastes your life on self-pursuits and not the mission of Christ. This should rattle our cage. It's possible to have the right foundation but build the wrong way. Think with me in terms of dots and lines. Dots and lines. As we make decisions about how we as a church build and grow, or as you make decisions about how you as an individual build and grow your life, think in terms of every decision being like a little dot. And what may seem prudent at the time to do this thing or take this job or as a church family to start this ministry or to do this particular thing, every individual decision whether it's in a church or whether it's an individual, is like a dot. But that dot then is followed up by another dot that sort of results out of that decision. And then there's another sort of dot because, well, we made this decision. Now, now that kind of leads us a little bit over here, so we make this decision. And it's like a dot. And it's like the little, little kid, you know, like in the little magazine at the dentist's office. You know how they have those little things that you can, you can trace, the little dot line thing, and oh, some animal or a turkey or a giraffe or whatever and there's like one right here and then two's all the way up at the top of the neck of the giraffe and then there's a bunch of little dots close together on the face and then you come back down and are you picturing this with me but the thing is is that individual decisions never really rest in and of themselves and so we should be wise about what we do what we add how we build whether it's our church or as an individual each little dot becomes eventually a tangent, a line in our life or in our church culture. And so if we do one little thing, well, it seems kind of prudent and wise for us to do this. Well, let's just do this. Let's do that. 
But then if it's not wise, if God hasn't really called us to do this, and if it's not foundationally centered on the gospel, reflecting those things that we talked about, being Christ-exalting, gospel-centered, Bible-saturated, pervasively humble, radically generous, spirit-empowered, grace-filled, and simple, then what happens is before you know it, you can, you can find yourself months or years down the line further away from your point of origin than you ever thought you'd be. But along the way, each little individual dot seemed right. We've got some young lieutenants in here that are going through training at Fort Benning. And I, I, it's been a few years, but I was out there doing that. And there's this little thing that we like to call land navigation. And they give you a map and a compass. And they say, here you go, Ranger. Find this point. And you, there's a little thing that you do, a technique. You shoot an azimuth is what it's called on the, on the map. And so you're at point A, and then you need to get to point B, which is three or four clicks away, which is a kilometer. That's several miles. And you need to shoot an azimuth on the compass. And so if you shoot an azimuth and you want to go 15 degrees that way, you start walking. But if you shoot a wrong azimuth and you shoot it 17 degrees, well, when you first start walking... You're not going to be that far off, but when you add several kilometers to that journey, by the time you get there, you will be a long ways away from the point you need to be. All the infantry guys over there, can I get a north-south on that? Yeah. It's the same way in life, man. It's the same way in building a church. So we should be wise in every little decision we make. It's important that we remember the foundation and the purpose and the mission of the church. Not to make much of ourselves, but to hold up Christ. It's possible to build. It's possible to have the right foundation and build the wrong way. Brings us to our our third point, which is grave and sobering. Listen to this. Verses 13, 14, and 15. He says, each one's work will become manifest. So he's saying that there's these people building on this this foundation of Christ. Some of them are building with gold and silver and precious stones, building as they should. And, of course, he's speaking metaphorically. He's not, he's not advocating, you know, building, you know, with these. He's, he's speaking metaphorically. Gold, precious, silver stones is the good way to build on the foundation. And wood, hay, and straw is the bad way to build. build. And so he's saying now that these things are, are building. They're kind of erecting this house. And then he's saying that there's coming a day of judgment for everyone's work, even Christians. He says, he goes on, he says, each one's work will become manifest for the day, that's capitalized in your Bibles, I think, isn't it? That means the judgment day. Martin Luther, the great reformer, said that he had only two days on his calendar. Today and that day when he will stand before Jesus. The day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test whatever sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. Listen, he's talking about Christians. But if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through the fire. So he's not saying that that person is going to lose their salvation. But what he's saying is, is picture a, we have several firemen in our congregation. And I spoke to, had lunch with one of our guys about six months ago. And he was talking about a fire where he was helping respond to. And they literally were pulling in fact, I think one of his fellow firemen had fallen down and was trapped, and he were, they were pulling him out. And, and they pulled this, this other fire person out 
fireman out, it really literally is the building collapsed and, and everything was gone. They lost everything in that structure, but smoke was coming out, literally snatched this person from the fire. And that's the picture that Paul is presenting to a person, a Christian or a church that wastes the gospel and the foundation of Jesus. He's not saying that you are going to lose your salvation, but he's going to be, he's saying you're going to be like one that barely escapes with smoke coming from you. And so that brings us to our third point, and it is utterly sobering. What we do in this life matters. What we do in this life matters. Every person in this room will stand before Christ and be judged. Every person in this room will stand before Christ and be judged. Now, we could spend a whole Sunday, we could do a whole series on the judgment of Christ, but let me give you four thoughts about the reality of judgment for everyone. Four thoughts about the reality of judgment for everyone. First, Christ will be the judge. This is what the Bible says. We could, again, quote many, many verses, but just a sampling. Second Timothy 4.1, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead. Christ will be our judge. Acts 10, verse 42. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to judge, to be the judge of the living and the dead. Jesus says himself, John 5, 26, For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself, and he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. The first point that we need to realize about judgment is that Christ is the judge. The second point is that unbelievers, and what I mean by that is people who have not trusted in Jesus. I'm not saying that you agree with the tenets of Christianity or that you cognitively believe it to be true, but people that have not personally trusted in Christ. That's what it means to be a Christian. To be a Christian, this is the gospel, friends. The gospel is is that you are dead in your trespasses and sins. And that you need a Savior. You need to be brought back to life. Death, spiritual death, is eternal separation from God forever. That's your starting point. That's clear. The Bible is utterly clear on that. All, all theologians that are faithful, regardless of what vein of the church they come from, agree with that. You're born spiritually dead, which means that you're separated from God forever. You need to be brought back to life. And Christ, in His Life on this earth lives the life that you should have lived. He lives a perfect, overcoming, sinless life, resisting every temptation that you should have resisted, thereby storing up righteousness, and then willingly lays down his life as a sacrifice on the cross. He becomes literally the wrath-bearing substitute on the cross for you and for me and for whoever would repent and believe in Jesus, only for those that would repent and trust in him. And then he comes back from the grave, vindicating his life and his sacrifice for our sins, showing God's approval and his victory over sin and death. And he commands all men everywhere to repent. And this is the scandal of the good news, is that he commands you to repent. And here, here's why it's such good news, is you can't, you're dead, you can't do that on your own. But when God moves upon a human heart with the good news of the gospel, he gives you the faith, he brings you back to life. He causes you to be born again and your first breath is faith and trust and repentance. 
And so right now, if you have not trusted in Christ and those words are ringing in your ear, you need to trust in Jesus. Go with what is stirring in your heart. Trust in Jesus. That's the gospel. And unbelievers have not done that. And if you have not done that, then do that right now. Don't trust in yourself. Don't trust in your works. Don't trust in your relative morality compared to the guy sitting next to you. A couple of weeks ago, I said the poor schmuck sitting next to you. And a couple of you leaned over and said, yeah, you, brother. Don't trust in your relative morality compared to the axe murderer or the felon or the, the crazy drunk or the terrorist. You are accountable to God. Every one of us, me, you, and every person that's ever lived, we're dead in our sins. We need to be brought back to life. And Christ brings us back to life and gives the gift of repentance and faith and trust. And so if you're hearing that right now, friends, that's the scandalous, gracious, good news that God is bringing you back to life. Unbelievers haven't done that. And if that's you right now, you're hearing my words. Trust in Christ. Trust in Christ. Come to the living water so that you would thirst no more. But here's the sobering reality, friends, is that if you do not do that, meaning trust in Christ alone for your right standing before God and thereby be brought back to life and live a life of God glorifying sanctification towards Him, you are an unbeliever and you are under the judgment and wrath of God. Those are not common words that you hear in American culture today because we all want to hold hands and sing kumbaya and make ourselves feel like we're okay because it's, it's this false gospel of justification by relative morality or justification by voting Republican or justification by conservatism or justification by patriotism. Those are false gospels. You need Christ. If you don't have Christ, if you haven't trusted in Him, you're an unbeliever. And this is what the Bible says awaits those who do not believe in Jesus. Romans 2, verses 5 through 7, Paul says, Because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. And you may say, well, my works have been good. I've been a pretty good guy. Really? Do you want to stand before God and let the the register of the checkbook of your heart be opened up so that he could examine every entry? Do you really want that? Do you really want that? And if still, if you say, wait a minute, I've still been a pretty good guy. Do you realize that apart from Christ, even your works of morality are really your expressions of idolatry because you're wanting to make much of yourself in that moment. In that moment, the person who says, I can trust in my works, is saying that, that, that I am sufficient in and of myself To make myself righteous before the Creator. Friends, that's not morality. That's idolatry. And God says that will be judged. So point number one in the reality of judgment is Christ will be the judge. Two, unbelievers will be judged. And three, believers will be judged as well. But in a different sense. Because remember, we've read from this where Paul says that you can have the foundation of Christ, but you can build in such a way that you're building the wood stray and hubble like the three little uh, uh, straw, like the three little pigs. Man, I just thought of three little pigs. A brick and straw blow your house down. You, your house can get blown down on the day of judgment, but you're still a Christian. 
Because you built with wood stray, a straw and I moved, what, what's the other one? That wood. Hey, thank you. I'm obviously not a farm boy. But believers will be judged, but in a different sense. Listen to this. Romans 14, verses 10 through 12. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before. He's talking to Christians now. In Romans 2, he was speaking to unbelievers. In Romans 14, Paul is speaking to believers. We will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, says the Lord every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. 2 Corinthians 5, 6-10 Paul writes, so we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage. And we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must, listen to this, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. So that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So I say that telling you scripturally clearly that all believers will be judged but listen to this key phrase in a different sense because we know that other parts of the bible specifically romans 8 verse 1 tells it tells us that there is no condemnation for those who are in christ jesus and so if there's some dread rising up in your heart saying oh my gosh i'm going to stand before god someday and it's going to be wrathful and vengeful and 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 horrible for me that is not the case Here's the glory, the scandalous good news of the gospel is that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so the judgment seat of Christ is not something that we need to dread, but we long for. Jesus puts it this way in John 5, 24. He who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. But yet the other verses that we read say that believers, in a sense, will be judged. So think of it this way. So what's going on there? What's, what's happening there? Believers will be judged, but not really like unbelievers. So, so what can we make of this? And that brings us to the fourth point. The believer's judgment is good because it brings glory to Christ, which alone satisfies us. So think of it this way. In fact, I had some experience with this recently with my children who had some projects due at school. And, you know, you're dropping your kids off on the project due day and the little drop-off line. And let's be honest, we're kind of competitive as parents. And so we're looking at our little kid coming out with his poster board and what he's done. And then we're looking at the other little kid and he's got stuff hanging all over. It's not any good. You're like, oh, my kid's better than him. You know? And so that, that project is going to get judged. It's going to get graded by the teacher. And the poor little kid that didn't put much time in it and stayed up watching Sports Center till late and started it on Thursday night when it's due on Friday, he's not going to get a good grade. And the teacher's probably not going to hang that one in the hallway. But the little kid who puts time into it and takes care of how he builds, as Paul writes to the Corinthians, hey, they're going to get a good grade and, and it's going to maybe be hanging in the hallway. Well, in much the same way, the good news of the believer's judgment is that our sorry efforts, we're not, have to, we're not going to have to be faced with it for the rest of our life because it's going to be burned up. And so my C minus, D minus effort, thanks be to God, is not going to be on display because it'll be burned. That is good news. Every sorry sermon, every weak piece of counsel, every moment of anger, every idolatrous decision, every point of selfishness that I have done as a Christian will be burned. 
glory to God because I don't have to see that in heaven. And you may say, you may say, oh, well, what about Johnny over there? He did better than you. His church was more biblically healthy. So he's going to have some, some things that will stand on the judgment day. And this, friends, is where we see judgment from such a broken perspective. Because when we're in heaven with Christ, all competitiveness, all sense of envy will be gone. And I will exalt and joy in the good work of my brother because it points me more gloriously to Christ. And so the... Believer's judgment is a beautiful thing because all of our good works will point towards Christ. And if this brother has more or that sister has more, it will bring more joy in my heart for Jesus. And God will burn up all of my sloppy efforts. Friends, I look forward to that day, as Martin Luther says, when I can stand before him and everything is made right. Oh, I long for that day. And you should too. Every believer should long for that day. And it gives us this great truth that what we do in this life matters. So listen to me, Christian. Listen to me, Reformed theologian. Listen to me, person who believes like I do in the providence and sovereignty of God. You can't lay back and smoke your pipe and say, say la vie. That means you got to stick it in there and say what we do matters. What we do matters. So let's live for the glory of God in our day. Yes. And pastors and teachers and those desiring to lead, you need to take special heed. Brad, Reynolds, Donnie Mack, Will Hawk. This is what the Bible says about folks like us. It says, James 3.1, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Hebrews 13.17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls. Why? Because we are those who have to give an account. Let them do this with joy, not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. There's coming a day when the elders of this church and the leaders of every other Christian church will not only have to stand before God and give an account of what they have done, but all have to give an account of you. And how I held out Christ, or did not hold out Christ, for you. That is a sobering thought. Brings us to our fourth and final point. I know it's long. Uh, you, you, you're hopefully used to that by now. God takes His church very seriously. And so should we. God takes His church very seriously, and so should we. Listen to verses 16 and 17. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Paul is speaking about sacredness and the preciousness of the local church in the heart of God. And of course this has a million applications for your own personal life as well. You're God's temple. Don't destroy it. This church is God's temple. 
So how do we destroy the body of Christ, even if unintentionally? We destroy it by not serving it, by not giving our hearts to it, by being cynical and sarcastic, by coddling past hurts and bad experiences, by esteeming our pain over Jesus' crucifixion. This is what Charles Spurgeon said in a sermon from October 24, 1869. It was a sermon on 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 5. And let me flip and read that because it gives you some context of what Spurgeon is talking about here. 2 Corinthians 8, 5, and he says, And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us, meaning the church. And in this sermon, Charles Spurgeon is speaking about giving yourself to the body of Christ and the mission of God. And this is what he says. After a true Christian has given himself or herself to the Lord, the very next act should be to give themselves to the Christian church. They should at once assay. Ever heard that word before? But it means to attempt. I guess that's the way they spoke in London. Do you say that word in England currently, uh, Alice? Okay, you still use it. Okay. Learn some English from English people. They should at once assay, as Paul did, to be united to the brethren of Christ somewhere in the district where he lives. If there be a Christian church, the newborn believer should at once seek fellowship with others who love his Lord because saved by his grace. The right way to do this is to give himself, not his name, not his money, not his mere presence, his sympathy, his active labors. labors. All these are part of the gift. But the soul of it all is to give himself in the whole force and weight of his influence, personality and ability. So far as God shall help him, he is to give up to the church, which is not an institution, which is not the elders of the church, which is not a group of pardoned rebels. It is the body collective of Christ. Give yourself to the body of Christ. And let your life be on mission together with other train wrecks for the glory of God and the exaltation of Jesus and the eternal joy of your soul. I conclude with this. Christian, do you realize that the church is God's plan for saving the world? Does it hold that type of importance in your life? <laughs> Does it? If not, be freshly convicted and encouraged by the Spirit of God this morning. Unbeliever, by God's gracious kindness, has He made Jesus real to you in these past 50 minutes or so? Are you aware that you have not trusted in Jesus? Do that right now. Trust in Christ. Turn from self-righteousness. Turn from sin. Turn from your world of morality. And trust, believe, put the weight of your life in what Jesus did on his death, his burial, and his resurrection, defeating your sin, being victorious over death and all eternity. Trust in that. The Bible says that you are his when you do that. Do that even now as I'm speaking and praying. Let's bow our heads and pray. Lord, thank you for... Paul's beautiful words on the church. Thank you for our local church. 
Lord, I pray for the leaders of this church that we would have great wisdom as to how we build. Lord, we are caught up in a culture of idolatry and consumerism and instant gratification and selfishness. And that tugs at every heart in this room. Mine as well. Lord, would you give us an unusual wisdom to build this church in a healthy way, not for our own sense of accomplishment or pride, but so that at the end of the day, on that day, what we do here would last for you, so that it would be a display of the greatness of Christ. Would you give us the unusual kindness to be part of a work like that for the glory of Christ in our place in our time? God, would you stir our affections for one another? And so thereby would you let it work out into our life and cause us to be unbelievably gracious and loving and humble towards one another. And if there be any, any angst or any sin between us and any person in this room, God, I pray that today we would handle it. Today we would repent to one another. Today we would forgive one another. And so by model Christ, Lord, if there be an unbeliever in this room, And certainly with a crowd this size, there are people that came into this room who were not born again. Would you do what only you can do? Would you cause them to be born again and give them the heartbeat of faith where they can turn from their sin, turn from their self-righteousness and trust in Christ and His life and His death and His resurrection alone? Would you do that, Lord Jesus, now? pray these things in the mighty name of Christ, our great God and King. Amen.